When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. The Coaches Network, bringing the game together. This is not about you. It is not about the session. It is meeting the needs of the young children who come to you in a, in a way that you haven't quite done it. The Coaches Network, bringing the game together. You're now listening to The Coaches Network podcast aiming to bring people at the heart of coach and player development together. My name is Coach Yas, a UEFA A licensed, FA Advanced Youth Award and FA Goalkeeper B licensed coach. With over 10 years of experience working in youth football from grassroots right through to Premier League academies, I'm currently operating as an affiliate tutor for the FA alongside working towards a Masters in Performance Football Coaching. Today I'm going to be joined by my co-host and the Coaches Network Analysis Specialist, Coach Ben. Ben is a UEFA A licensed coach who holds the FA Youth Award and a Masters in Sports Coaching, with 10 years of experience including working across the male and female youth development pathways, alongside a vast experience on individual player and team performance analysis. And as part of our Insight series, we'll be joined by a range of individuals working across multiple disciplines within the coaching world in order to explore their journeys and dig deeper into their experiences so that we can leave you with some golden nuggets to help you reach your full potential. Right, guys, welcome back to the Coaches Network. Today, I've got a very special guest with me, uh, for Pete Sturgis. Pete is currently the national lead coach at 5 to 11s at the FA. Good morning, Pete. How are you? Yeah, I'm very well, thanks. And thanks forward to this. Likewise. And um, Pete, I'm not going to waste any time. You know, you um, want to get straight into it. Would you mind just going into a bit of detail around who you are and what you do? Wow. Um, that's one thing I actually find difficult to do is talk about myself. But um, I lead on all things foundation phase for the Football Association and I have done uh, for the last 12 years Um, and three years before that I still worked for the Football Association as a regional coach um, covering Yorkshire uh, which which I found out later was a huge area um, but really enjoyable so last 15 years with the FA but before then I've had lots and lots of different experiences that I think have helped me and put me in good stead in order to do the job that I'm doing now. Fantastic. And, you know, just touching on those experiences, I want to take you right back to the start of your coaching journey. Would you mind just expanding a little bit around where that journey started and where you found your passion for coaching? Yeah. Um, I, when I was 15, 16, I went through all the usual trials with the professional clubs in the in the 
Midlands where I lived um, was always deemed too small. Um, so I, I played non-league until I was 35 and finished up as player coach for Rushall Olympic, um, having played for Hales in town for three years previous to that and then a variety of clubs before then. Um, and I think it was only when I began to be the player coach at that club that I really found that I, it was something I wanted to do and wanted to do to the best of my ability. So even though I wasn't a professional footballer, I'd obviously played at a, at a good level and I thought that might stand me in good stead as to what might be required to make it enjoyable for other people. Brilliant. And so, you know, just touching on that, you know, the end of your playing career, getting involved in coaching as a player coach, where did that journey go from there? Because if you touched the last 15 or so years with the FA, would you mind just talking to us in terms of the build-up to that? Yeah, I worked for um, my local club. I'm, I'm a Walsall supporter for my sins. So the Saddlers are my team. And I worked for them for five years as a volunteer with their... Um, Centre of Excellence, as it was then, with their age groups in the foundation phase. Because I wanted two things. I wanted experience of what the Centre of Excellences were like and what um, academy football was like. And I also um, wanted to give something back to the club that I supported. So I was lucky enough to be given the opportunity and I volunteered for five years. So... When coaches ask me, you know, how do you get to where you are now? Um, I, I think some, they don't always realise the long journey. We all tend to go on. And it's only right at the, the very end that we get where we really want to be. And But it's been a long and painful journey sometimes to get to where you are. So the five years at Walsall was really useful for me. Um it was a time when I also worked for Curver Coaching. So I had a nice mix of what Curver had to offer regarding skill development. Mm -hmm. I had different groups of young players that I could work with. And I did a lot of individual work with players. Um, and then I had a bit of a career change. So although I carried on coaching, I uh, was a primary trained so I have a degree in English language and literature with education that I saw as the path into primary school teaching mm -hmm. but having done the degree I never actually taught in primary school and I went and taught for eight years in further education with 16 to 19 year olds so teaching and learning has always been part of my journey um, but it's been quite varied in that I was trained for a particular age group and then worked with the other end of the spectrum, really. And I, I think I really benefited from that. Definitely. And so, so where did the passion, I guess, you know, you talked there about taking a degree in primary education um, and not actually going on ahead and actually, uh, I guess, pursuing a role within that. Where did that passion come from to work with <clears throat> players? Obviously, you touched on there in the last 15 years, working for the FA, last 12 spent predominantly working with the foundation phase and leading on that side of things. Where did that passion come from? Yeah, uh, I think, I think you, when you go into education, 
I think the one, the biggest thing I took from it was that everybody can improve and everybody has potential. And the more I delved into child development and what was possible, if the if the if the planets align and if the environment's right and the coaching methodology is right, that potential can be limitless. And so I think I was just inspired by being given such a fantastic opportunity to work with young people who, if I got it right and worked with them, then who knows what would be possible. And that was a real driving force for me that I I did want to get it right. And I did want to do right by these young people. And I think that that still remains a huge motivator today. So, you know, kind of moving forward a little bit then in terms of your coaching career, you've had a few, you know, few experiences in between. How did the, how did your first role come along with the FA? You started off as a regional. Um, you also spent a lot of time as a <clears throat> foot, futsal side of things. Where did that come yeah. from? Yeah. Um, well, I'd always said, and my wife will, will bear this out, that I, I could never, because of my background, uh, particularly uh, not playing professional football um, and being being a teacher, I never thought I would get a full-time role in football because I hadn't got the kind of experiences that come with having had a professional career. Mm. And I thought that was always going to be a disadvantage. But I was lucky enough to do some itinerant work for the FA and that brought me into contact with John Peacock. Um, And for whatever reason, he must have seen something in me that when he got the academy manager's job at Derby County, he asked me to come and work with him and be his assistant director, looking after the under sevens to 14s. Um, so I had four great years at Derby County with John, learning a lot from him, but learning a lot about what it, what a professional academy needs to look like or what it could look like. Um, and so I, I think that that first role within professional football really fired me up and allowed me to gain a reputation for working with young children. Um, and I think when John left the academy and I was made redundant, I then worked for myself for three years as a soccer coach. So I started a business. I literally went from school to school, session to session, grassroots club to grassroots club with a stack of cones, a bag of bibs and a bag of balls. And I just did as much as I could partly to put food on the table, but also it was a massive learning experience because I was coming across kids that wanted to play football, didn't want to be involved, didn't even want to run around, and yet they were stood in front of you. Mm. And I think that period of learning really teed me up for the opportunity I got when I applied to be a regional coach with the FA. And I I felt really confident in the landscape that I was going into. And that's delivering courses on behalf of the FA, but also advising coaches. And I think it's really difficult to provide advice to coaches if you haven't lived and breathed their world and and what they encounter every time they have a game or a a coaching session. So I 
I felt really confident in that, still knowing that I had lots to learn. So that really circuitous route brought me to become a, um, a regional coach with the FA. And then obviously the rest has just followed on from there. Definitely. And you just take you back a few moments. You talked there about, you know, starting off uh, in the coach and you had a bit of experience working with Curver. For those that don't know, would you mind just going into a bit, a bit of detail in, uh, around who Curver are and what you kind of <clears throat> took from that experience? Yeah. Um, Curver Coaching is, is a worldwide brand and a very well-respected brand. Um and I worked with them for 18 months. So I have the franchise for the area where I lived in the um, in the Staffordshire area. And it's purely about individual skill development through a series of choreographed um, exercises that involved one, two, four, six, eight players. Um, and it really gave me an insight into how you could structure training how you could make training progressive and really begin to challenge players um, so that my understanding of individual skill development began to um, improve because I then looked at skill development in, in its entirety and Curva was just one way of improving individual skill and it had a good reputation. But I also found out that there were others and so I began to, to immerse myself in, well, how can we really create something quite special for our young children so that we can maximise their ability to absorb skill and to learn new things and to become the best that they can become? And probably, if I look back, Curva was definitely a, an integral part of that process. Definitely. And how, how influential would you say Curva's been in identifying it? and formulating your own coaching philosophy in that respect? Um, it did, but always not always in a positive way mm. because the more I read about skill development, the, the importance of um, randomness, about thinking for yourself, about being able to react in the moment and have more in your locker that almost comes from instinct, the, the curve uh, activities that I did certainly were very um, structured. It was, you will go here, you will do this turn, and then you'll go there. And I thought, well, that's part of it. And some children are going to need that kind of structure and that formality and that kind of routine in order to begin this process of skill development. But I also saw that something was missing because... It's okay doing it in a, um, a structured practice, but could the players really do it in the randomness and the, the, the hurly-burly of the game of football? When I look back at Curva now, they've actually put that part in, but it wasn't there when I was part of um, the programme. Mm. They now call it crossing the bridge, and crossing the bridge is taking those individuals' skillful abilities and placing them within small-sided games. And for me, that was the bit that was missing, but they've since added that. So I, I think it's a more well-rounded programme now. And in terms of, obviously, working 
with Kerbin, would you would you would you agree and say that a lot of their practices are maybe directed and uh, based around younger players? Um, yes, but I I think the thing is with skill development is that it's a continual process, mm. and I think we fall into a trap if we think well the foundation phase is where you do skill, it's. Um, the youth development phase is where, you know, we make them into athletes because we can suddenly train in that physical corner a lot more. Um, and then we add on the tactical bit later on. I think those things can be happening all of the time. Mm. So even in the foundation phase, we have a huge emphasis on skill development and fundamental movement um, capabilities. But we can also work quite tactically, but it will look different to the tactics that might apply to an 11-side game or what you might see in the Premier League on a, a Saturday afternoon. But we can, if we really begin to study this area, we can challenge the players in a way that they've never been challenged before in all of those areas. But we have to be really skillful about it. And just on that then, would you mind present, presenting with some examples as to what coaches could be doing when we're working in the foundation phase if they want to take into consideration those other corners, i.e. the physical corner and the side corner in particular, um, when working with foundation phase players? Yeah. If you, if you take, let's just take a, a 2v1 practice. So we've overloaded it because the players are younger. So we've got two players who are working together against one who is obviously trying to, to get the ball. Within that practice, it might sound really simple, but there are so many ways that the two players can combine together. Mm. So I can get lots of decision-making, even though there are only three players involved. And the decisions involve, if I'm on the ball, do I shield it? Do I try to turn away from pressure? Can I deal with the pressure? Where is my teammate? When is the right time to pass the ball to them? Um, if I pass the ball to them, where do I go next? And all of this is happening within a, a, a small area uh, with only three players. And that's just for the player who's on the ball. So if I decide to shield it, then I'm getting obviously technical returns, but I'm getting huge t physical returns because I'm in a, a, a contact situation. Mm -hmm. But I'm also trying to wriggle out of that or manoeuvre my way out of that with the ball so that I can open up the game with my partner. You've got the player without the ball who's putting pressure on me um, and we want that pressure to be really realistic. And then we've got my partner who is trying to keep passing lines open, who is always trying to be in a good supporting position so that if I ever need him or her, then I can offload the ball to them. And then the whole situation changes again. So even in that 2v1 situation, which sounds very simplistic, we can gain a lot of technical returns, physical returns, but also tactical returns. Mm. And then just on that, then, you know, you, I'd be interested to get your thoughts around how important it is or what the balance should be around unopposed versus opposed work within the foundation phase. Um, I, I'm I always asked this because I have I have really moved quite a long way along that continuum of um, unopposed to opposed, and I'll try to work at that unopposed end as much as possible. So I'm often asked this question. My my 
answer is always the same. We have to give the child or the player exactly what they need. And if a player needs a period of time where they are with the ball without anybody trying to take it off them and without any opposition, if that's what they need to take them to that next step where we can change what the whole situation looks like, then who am I to say you can't have that? And I think putting in those steps are really important. My big issue with it at the time was I saw coaches keeping players in those unopposed situations when the players actually needed the next bit. And I'm thinking you're not reaching that challenge point where the players are, are being challenged and still supported and still getting some success and some failure, but we are putting them in situations that are beginning to challenge them much more than we've ever done before. And so I think if we, if we do it for a very good reason and for a certain period of time, I think you can work completely unopposed. But my big issue was we had coaches keeping kids there for months mm. and actually the player needed the next bit. So just on that, you know, I, I'm I, I'm a bit conflicted on this myself in terms of the, the unopposed and supposed. My my, you know, and similar to you, I would say that I've changed dramatically and moved across that continuum dramatically over the years of my coaching. And I would say that for me now, I've got to a point where when it comes to those unopposed elements, I see the benefits in doing unopposed work. However, I feel it could be more efficient and effective. Um, where if you're going to go to the unopposed work, they understand, the players certainly understand the context in which these unopposed practices will directly link into the opposed moments, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. And I read about the um, the French National Centre in Clairefontaine, and they would do with their under-14 age group, their international players or, or the players who were hoping to be part of their international setup, mm-hmm. um, their national setup, sorry. They would do a lot of unopposed work about ball striking and putting fade on the ball and putting real um, bend on the ball. But, and I was said, well, surely if it's, if it's good enough for them, should we not start this earlier? But, you know, when you're 14 and a coach explains to you, we are doing this so that you can really begin to manipulate the ball and it needs some focused practice. I think when you're 14, you can probably get your head around that and you'll probably practice more effectively. Mm. If you're saying that to a nine or 10 year old kid, they have no concept of, of that kind of focused practice yet. So I think we have to give them lots of opportunities and high levels of repetition within games because that's the stage of development that they're at and that's the way that we maximize the development that is possible for the age and stage that they're at Mm. when they're older they may understand that actually i need to really hone this and refine it and polish it and one of the ways to do that is through more focused practice of repetition without any uh, um opponents i just need to groove this in but i think you can understand that when you're slightly older so i guess for, for a younger player then how would you present that message or would you just avoid that message all to all in all the the message would be 
um, and it may be an implicit one because I, I may not even say this. It, if I can structure the practice right and the rules and the conditions are uh, appropriate, I can get my high levels of repetition of very similar things, but never the same things. Mm. And so if you look at something like dynamical systems, which is another theory around skill development, it's all about your actions will take place within an environment, but the, your actions will never be exactly the same. And so you need to get what they call degrees of freedom so that you can still do what you want to do to be effective, but it may not always look and feel the same. Sure. And I think my responsibility is to keep, is to keep levels of repetition high. And in doing that, if it is game-like, I get total engagement by the players because that's the thing that taps into their psyche for the stage of development that they're at in the foundation phase. So then beyond that, then you would, would it be fair to say that you're very much for a majority use of small-sided games with the foundation phase and in particular maybe looking at ways you can constrain your practices to keep them focused around a specific area without explicitly highlighting those Yes. I mean, there, there have been occasions where we've had very clear objectives as to what we want to practice. Um, but I don't do that every time. And I've, I've set up sessions where I've said to the players, we're going to practice something tonight, but I'm not going to tell you what it is. But when I see it, I'm going to let you know. Right. And so I'm trying to hook into the, the, the young players' curiosity I don't want every session to be the same. And so if you go and say, right, tonight we're going to do transitions or we're going to do, you know, our in-possession stuff, that's fine. But if you do that every week, I'd rather it be that the children are not quite sure what it might look like. Right. And so we play the game and I, I might just be watching and I'll say, ooh, that was very, very close to what, I'm, what I've got in my head. Mm. Uh, oh, you've just done it. Uh, and then when you have a drinks break, you can say to the players, what do you think we were working on tonight? And then it just puts the whole session in a, a different kind of light because the onus is on, you're bringing the players into the session straight away. Right. So just on uh, that then, would you say that, you know, because I've, I've often battled with this myself in understand, you know, is it always, you know, there'll be some coaches listening to this that will even challenge, well, if we're leaving it up to the players to identify what we're working on, so to speak, then how does that affect your interaction and your interventions as a coach, certainly when it comes to providing information for the players? Or is it taking by taking that approach, you've, you've accepted and understood that it's going to be a more of an obs observation and feedback approach rather than any other? It is because eventually when we decide, when the, the players have worked out all the clues and have identified what we're working on that gives me the opportunity to say you know when you did it successfully what was the outcome or what did you do what was your arms doing what were your hips doing what about when you released the ball because when you released it you took that defender completely out of the game uh, so what was it about your actions that i noticed and what were you thinking when that was all taking place so it's it's a really personal and relationship 
kind of connection in delivering the session. Right. But I, I think that can be a real strength. Definitely. And I think, you know, something that kind of stands out for me is, is you really trying to develop and raise the self-awareness of a player around what's happening and maybe the impact of their actions in that in those moments. Now, to take you back a few moments there, you talked there about uh, maybe deciding to go with that session or deciding to go with another session. What are some of the considerations you'd be making ahead of that before you actually decide to adopt a session uh, in that way? Yeah, um, it'll 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 be based around two things. Um, certainly, the needs of the players, um, and I do know that it's it's quite a, a a throwaway statement to say that in every session we've got to try and meet the needs of every player. That is so difficult to do, but. I think players in the foundation phase can all benefit from getting better at certain things. And so there is a, there is a catch-all um, that you can, you can apply to your sessions that are probably going to hit with most players. And then you can begin to identify individual differences um, within that. So when we talk about a games-based approach, it doesn't have to be 4v4, 5v5, 6v6. I think small number games to me are 1v1s, 2v1s, 3v2s, 2v2s, because these are the building blocks for every format of the game that we play. And even though you're playing 11v11, you're probably in that game operating, if you've got the ball, with two or three other players only. And so the more we understand how to be effective within those small number groups, the better that we can apply that to 7v7, 9v9, 11v11, or any other format. Mm. And so I, I'll concentrate a lot upon the needs of the players, but also helping them to understand the building blocks of the game so that whenever we play any format, I can say to them, you know, we've just done a 2v1. We're going to play 4v4 now. But show me how two can always beat one, even though they're, we're playing a 4v4. Because right. that is placing that understanding within a different context. And that's when real learning takes place and real permanent changes in behavior takes place. Mm-hmm. I think what, you know, what, I, what I hear you saying there is obviously almost challenge the player to identify the original situation in a new context. Perfectly. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's the hardest bit because I've had coaches say to me, oh, Pete, we've done defending. And then we turned up on Sunday and they looked as though they'd never you know, defended in their lives. Well, we might have done defending or we've, we've done a few sessions on it, but have the players learned it? Have, has there really been a permanent change in their behaviour or in their understanding? Mm-hmm. I think that can only come over a long period of time where we've said, defending this situation defending that context how would you defend like this how do you defend when the situation is this Mm. and what we've done we've presented defending in so many different ways and in so many different formats we've built up a huge comprehensive understanding of what defending is about definitely and i think yeah just just to kind of build on that then what would you say to those coaches who are maybe looking at things in a way that you know they want to be very heavy on the technical tactical side of things 
and you know not maybe appreciating that those players aren't quite ready for that. What would your advice be for those? Um, I think what you have to realise in the foundation phase, particularly, is that we are just taking the first few steps of a really long journey. And if you try to cram everything in because you know all of the content that that journey is going to, you know, generate, Mm. if you try to cram all that into the foundation phase, and I know this is happening at the moment with academies, the players have got three in-possession learning objectives, three out-of-possession learning objectives, three transition objectives, three match day objectives. Well, I'm sorry, but with the best will in the world, no player is going to be able to think about all 12 learning objectives when they're dealing with somebody who's faster than them, bigger than them, and they're hanging on by their fingernails. So you can actually forget all of that and get real back to basics and make sure that the children begin to understand the principles of the game because they are not going to change. And it's those that we have to work with the players to understand. And it, it takes a sl- it's taking the players and the coach on, a, on the scenic route because we understand that actually taking our time and presenting lots of information in lots of different ways and testing it out in lots of different contexts is the best way for these children in this magical period of their development to learn in the best possible way. Definitely. And you know, just want to touch on that. You know, the, it's, speaking of coaches who might actually have all that content that they want to, and, and that information they want to offload to the players. I think a large, you know, key part is obviously understanding when the information is appropriate and identifying the right time to offload some of that information based on the, I guess, the situation you're in. Now, I just want to take it towards the, you know, the coach education pathway a little bit. Over the recent years, there's obviously been a lot of changes in the coach education pathway, and, and I'm sure you've been heavily involved in the, in the restructure of those in some way or another. What would you say to those coaches who have maybe got a, got a view where they feel the coach education pathway, whilst it has developed in so many ways, there seems to be a less emphasis on the, te- the technical, tactical side of things. Certainly, when it comes more specifically, rather, when it comes to the delivery of the tu- from the tutor. Yeah. Um, you know, traditionally, people go on courses, and certainly from a lot of coaches I've spoken to, I'm sure you've probably had this conversation with many others too, that would go on these courses to maybe uh, upskill themselves and develop their their deeper understanding around the technical, tactical side of things, which now seemingly, on the surface of things, is not doesn't seem to be the case as or not as much anymore. What would you say to those coaches who maybe on the search for that information, looking to upskill themselves on that technical, tactical side of things? in terms of how they can go about obtaining that information and developing that, that aspect of their, their work? Yeah, I, I, think, I think coaches have to understand that if you go on a coach education course, and, and this hit me between the eyes, because when I, when I completed my A licence, the, the tutor actually said when he passed me, Pete, we know you won't coach this way when you go and work with your players. Mm. And I I thought, so why have I just spent all of this time demonstrating how I coach in a particular way, using a particular formula, and the governing body accepts that I won't coach that way when I go work with my players? And I thought that there's got to be a mismatch. 
but I do understand that you have to demonstrate your knowledge and understanding. And the way that the A license was structured then was a really good way of demonstrating how much you knew and how you could put on a coaching session to, to highlight your own technical understanding. So I think it was a really difficult thing to challenge. But what we had to say was, as a coach, you need all of this information. But unless you deliver it in a way that is going to be impactful and effective with the players that you're working with in an environment that's appropriate and using a methodology that's appropriate, all you've got is a mass of information. You are not really going to impact upon these players. And I think what we've tried to find since is a middle ground where we, we are maintaining the importance of the technical knowledge and the tactical knowledge of the coach. But what we've brought front and centre is the environment within which that is coached. Mm. So that that is, that is trying to say, in a perfect storm, we've got a coach who really understands tech and tack, but it's delivered using a methodology that really appreciates teaching and learning. And then suddenly the two things can benefit the players but if you've got one without the other, then it's not going to work. But I don't think, I don't think the tech and tack has ever been forgotten. I think what really gained momentum was the fact that the environment and your methodology is so important. Definitely, I think you know within that, then how important is it? Or, or would you mind talking to how important it is that coaches understand? the needs of their particular environment rather than their own wants in that respect, if that makes sense. Yeah. I, I mean, because I work predominantly in the foundation phase, I need to understand the foundation phase game. I need to understand the adult game and I need to understand the differences between the two. Because if my expectations are based upon the, the adult game, the players that I'm working with can be 10 years away from that. So there may be a mismatch straight away. So I have to really understand the game that foundation phase, phase players play. So you can only do that by absorbing yourself in the game. And then if you put adult an adult model of the game over the foundation phase game, if you're not the filter, you're going to be making um, inappropriate demands on the players because they're not at that stage yet. So tactically, they're not at that stage. But there are some things that we can really begin to help the players with that will bear fruit later on when they play that adult type of game. And so I think it's really important that coaches in the foundation phase Look at child development, look at cognitive development and how children take on board information, can process it, how that becomes uh, learning, how that can then be taken into their long term memory so that it becomes part of them. Mm. But if you try to rush that process or short circuit it, it, it can sometimes bite you on the backside. And just on that, then, how important is it that then coaches? I guess, 
take 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 stock on where they feel that they're best suited. Obviously, you you know over the years you've identified that your passion and your you know is working with the foundation phase players. Whereas a lot of coaches who are maybe using certain environments as stepping stones, which is you know I guess very common. Um, yeah, and you can't fault them for that because you know they have to start somewhere. How important is it for maybe a coach to identify and be focused? And I'm I'm sure you'd agree that it, they would need to be focused on the situation they're currently and not necessarily where they want to end up. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, I, I I think I think it's a really important decision as to coaches uh, where they decide to to ply their trade, and the only the only real um, dissonance can come where. I can see a coach who is absolutely suited to developing young players in the foundation phase, but their desire is to work higher up the food chain. And that could be for personal reasons, financial reasons, kudos or whatever. Um, So I, I think knowing where you fit best and where your personality fits, where your knowledge and understanding fits I think that's all part of this reflective process that we want coaches to go through because we want every session and every interaction with the players that we're working with to be maximal. Mm. And so if, if you're great in one area, but you're playing your trade in another, that might not be maximal. It might be good, but I, I, I really think I'm most effective with the foundation phase players, even though for eight years I worked with the seniors with the England futsal. So, I mean, you'll have to ask the players if we were successful at that. But, um, you know, I, I found that there are similarities and my personality allowed me to work across both, but I'm, I'm not sure that's the same for everybody. Mm. And just, you know, kind of just kind of link into that then. Your time with the futsal squad. How did that come around? And you know, what was what were some of the key things that you, I guess, took away and understood from that environment that you were able to then apply within the football side of things? It was in the early stages. It was it was actually quite difficult for me, and I had internal struggles because I needed. I knew that it was a performance environment where, when I first started. I knew that the programme was being looked at with real scrutiny as to whether it should continue or not. So I knew every result could mean that either the programme might continue or it it might shut down. That's where we were at that stage. And suddenly I was thrust from a, a development environment, which I really flourished within, into a results based environment where I thought, blimey, we need to win these games. Um, So I needed to take my developer's head and everything I stood for and try to apply it in the best possible way within a performance environment. And I I think towards the end, I felt really comfortable with that. Whether whether I was successful or not, I don't know. I mean, results-wise, we obviously improved tremendously. Um, But without feedback from the players no one knows definitely and you know just kind of within that then what would you say were some of the things that were transferable for you going from futsal to football and obviously then or rather football to futsal then back (laughs) to football yeah i think the way that you deal with players and 
how you try to make we used to train on camps we used to train uh, twice a day sometimes three times a day and if the training's not enjoyable or engaging or relevant to what the players want to achieve and we want to achieve as a team you're not going to get players busting a gut for, for three sessions a day um, and so I think that taught me how through carefully crafting the sessions we could keep the physical demands really really high because it was enjoyable and competitive and engaging and, and a lot of fun um, and I think if your sessions are that then players will work really really hard and probably above what they would normally do mm. so I definitely took that approach from the foundation phase because that's the basis of my work with young players. Definitely. So now you have to talk to me about your current role now, so national lead for the 5 to 11s. Would you mind just going into a bit of detail around what that actually entails? Yeah, um, I work across the game. So over the last two years, I've been taking the foundation phase DNA out to the grassroots game because the, the whole idea behind the foundation phase DNA is to connect with what Gareth Southgate and all of our England development teams are advocating regarding play development and the skills and abilities we want the players to have. But I also wanted to, to send out a very strong message that we can't do this on our own and we need the whole of the grassroots game behind us because you can all play a part. Mm. And so at whatever level you're playing, uh, or sorry, you're coaching in grassroots, you can make a contribution to what Gareth is trying to achieve with the national team. And so the roadshow events, and there were over 80 of them around the country, were to say, I've stripped back from Gareth and his aims and objectives for the England team all the things that might be relevant for foundation phase players. And so if we do more of these things and you can help us and be part of this, then when they do get old enough to play for Gareth, um, we'll have really put something in place that he can reap the rewards from. Oh. So that work in the grassroots game is so rewarding. Um, so that's one part of it. And then the rest of my time, is working across the uh, academies, particularly around our Advanced Youth Award, which is an award that all academy coaches have to get. And I, I lead on the uh, foundation phase part of that so that we communicate to the professional game all of the same messages that we're sending out to the grassroots game in the hope that when they're putting their foundation phase programmes together, they begin to integrate some of our DNA key messages because they are right for young children. Um, and it's, it's just saying, I know the players may be in a professional setting, but they are children first, not young professional players. So developing them in this way is likely to bear more fruit later on. Brilliant. And, you know, I just wanted to take you back to your own journey now a little bit and looking at, some of the influences you've had in your in your career, um, you know, you touched on the, your initial role at Derby County, yeah, um, where John John Peacock was, you know, a big influence for you. Just beyond John, and or maybe even including John, what are some of the 
you know some of the biggest influences you've had in your in your journey and what were some of the key messages and i guess uh bits of guidance that you've kind of pulled away from those people yeah i i mean um in the early days when i was an itinerant um for the fa so i wasn't working for the fa but i would deliver courses for them john allpress asked me to um staff the youth coaches course which was the precursor to our advanced youth award really and and our youth modules um and it was a groundbreaking course and and john really he was at the forefront of this and it was taking lots and lots of understanding about teaching and learning and applying it to a football setting and it really did seem to bring this whole thing about coaching and development and and your philosophy and methodology it just ignited the whole thing so i can't thank john enough for that and i i remember on the first day that on on the first course that he asked me to staff we had a, I arrived the night before and I said, what, so what, what do you want me to cover tomorrow, John? And I'll always remember what he said. He said, Pete, if I had to tell you what to do, I wouldn't have brought you on this course. And I just thought, wow, this is somebody who's empowering me because he believes and trusts in what I bring. Um, and he just wants me to, to go forth and, you know, do what I do. So it, it was such a, a pivotal moment um, and I know what it, how I felt and what I've taken from that is if we can empower other coaches or we can empower our young players if they feel how I felt on that on that night then you know th- this is something really powerful mm. and then you know just kind of kind of moving things on then in your current role obviously you've been working in that role for, for the last 15 or so years as you put it what helps you to stay inspired and motivated, you know, to be your best each day and to get better every time you, you step back on the grass or get back into the environment? Yeah. Um, I would not sit here and say I'm at my best every day. I mean, I, I think like everybody else, I'll have good days and, and, and bad days. But I think once you're interested in teaching and learning, skill development, child development, all of the things, the psych and social stuff that surrounds it, I think it, it makes you feel very, very small because I've suddenly realised there is so much that I don't know. And I think that inspires me um, every day to say, you know, can I just be a little bit better? And I know that sounds a bit twee, but I, I, do, I do think there is so much that I don't know that I need to know in order to get that little bit better each day. And I think that motivates me, certainly. And, you know, throughout all this time in coaching, work, working in, you know, in the academies and working for the FA and obviously doing a bit with the futsal, I'm sure you've observed so many coaches in your roles. What would you say are some of the biggest things that maybe frustrate you or pet hates for you when it comes to coaching? Um... <laughs> I don't know whether I've got to be politically correct here or not. Um, be be organic. Yeah, I I think I I really wonder why in a coaching situation, particularly with young players, because that's 
that tends to be the, the kind of coaches that I observe. Why it, it, it has to be seen as more about the coach than actually about the players. Okay. Uh, and I think um, that it's uh, actually, I, I do, I, I'll, I'll qualify this in a moment. Um, but I think if it's, if it's about more about the coach and less about the players, I think that needs resetting and rebalancing because the coach should be the person and the, is the catalyst for setting the players off on their own journey, mm. not controlling the journey and setting the pace of that journey or the direction of that journey. I know in the early part for young players, before we can empower them and they're happy with that empowerment, we have to play a greater part. But if that continues all through their journey, we never really produce those independent thinkers and mm. independent players and those real problem solvers and decision makers, which we're all after. And the reason I said I needed to qualify it is because when I do a roadshow event, I have to coach in a particular way that actually, if someone watched me, they'd say, well, you're doing exactly what you've just criticised, Pete. Yeah. But I'm doing it to get buy-in so that I can show the coaches that if we inspire the kids, if we can engage them, and if we can really create this magical environment, we can set the kids free. And yeah. when you watch, that's what I'm trying to do. So I, I am trying to qualify it. Um, but... I, I just think it is about the players and where we can take them, not where we can get on the back of them. Definitely. I think one, one quote that kind of stands out to me as you, as you speak on that note, someone once said to me, and I never really thought about it from this perspective, they said, well, if you think about it, the players don't need a coach to play the game. Yeah. But without players, the coach can't do any work. Yeah. yeah. So the, the, co the coach needs the players in that sense more than the players need the coach. Um so I think, you know, having the players at the forefront of everything that we're doing is, 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 is vital and crucial for any coach looking to support, especially when it comes to player development anyway. Um, and probably, yeah. Even, yeah, to be honest, even, even on the performance side of things, and if you're looking at trying to get results, you know, how are you going to get results if the players don't want to play for you? Yeah, uh, I think we should always have in the back of our minds, is what I'm doing and the way that I'm doing it, pushing the players inexorably towards a place where they actually need me less and eventually don't need me at all. And it, it's a bit like parenting, that if you're a parent, your job is to take your children through a childhood and an early, uh, a later childhood that prepares them to be an independent adult mm. and not dependent upon you. And I think you've failed if whenever something goes wrong, your child comes back to you and say, how do I fix this? What we should have done during the process is help them understand how they fix it themselves. Yeah. And, and I think if we, it, it shouldn't dominate everything we do, but there should always be elements where we are thinking, do you know what? This will help them need me less. Mm. I think just to kind of build on that though, you know, there's also that element of as coaches or even in case of parents we may not be 
uh, well versed in every situation that our child or players may go through. However, we can also be vulnerable and honest with them to, un- to help them understand that we're both on a learning journey together. Absolutely, um, we can work yeah. it together. So, if there is a situation that arises and they come to us for, you know, with that that uh, you know discussion around, well, how do I fix this? Yeah. Okay. So, well, you know what? I've never been through that situation. However. I'm sure we can work it out together and whether that be going away and maybe doing your own research or sitting down and having a conversation around the, the challenge or the problem that's faced us in that, in those moments, then we can kind of dissect and that it'll be a collaborative process rather than a, you say, or I say you do approach or yeah. leave to approach. And just, just on that, then, you know, talking in terms of dealing with challenges and problems, what would you say is one of the biggest challenges you face in your coaching journey then? Um, uh, when um, w- when I um, put together the module one, um, which was all about the environment and, and knowing more about the children that were stood in front of you, I think that, that really went against the current coach education system. Yep. They fully embraced the direction that, that we wanted to go in. And I think it really led to our an awareness and an understanding that just knowing about football is not enough anymore. And if, if we are working with very young children and children as they go through their whole childhood towards adulthood, we really need to understand them to, in, in a way that we've, to a depth that we've never understood them before. And so I think, I think the work that was done around that really helped one of the things that I was um, really against, which was that all the answers lay in football. Mm. Well, actually, they don't. The answers can lie in football. It can lie in the relationship that you build with your players. It can, re- it can, um, it can lie within the understanding and knowledge that you have. It can lie in the empowerment and responsibility you give the players it's a lot more complicated than football. And yet I think for every problem that I had when I was a young coach, it was as though the answer will always be in the football, but it, it's not like that. Definitely. And I think, you know, it's just sometimes stepping outside of the industry that we're in just to maybe seek um, guidance and support on how to better provide or better create an environment for these young players to thrive in. Um, you know, it just... As we start to wind down now, I'm going to take you back a, a little while, back to the start of your coaching journey, you know, initially starting as a player coach. Um, if you had an opportunity to go back and speak to Pete Sturgis back then, <laughs> what would be one message you'd want to give yourself, knowing what you know now? Yeah. Um, I, I think then I, I did have... Uh, a pivot, a pivotal moment with um, my son's uh, under eleven team, and I was doing this session, and I thought it was the best thing ever, and it was right at the beginning of my journey. And this lad tugged my shirt sleeve. I looked him in the face, and he he, he said to me, "Pete, this is boring," and it shook me to the core. And I think if he hadn't have said that to me, this is what I would go back and say to my former self now, 
in that Pete, this is not about you. It is not about the session. It is meeting the needs of the young children who come to you in a in a way that you haven't quite done it in the past. So I I think that that's certainly what I would say. And I thought I was actually good at meeting the needs of children. Mm. Um, but I, I was obviously a million miles away. I think just on that, though, Pete, you know, you talk there about that, that child or that young player at the time coming over to you and saying that. That's, in some ways, that's almost a, um, how can I put it? It's almost a luxury to have a situation like that, in that a lot of players, especially at young ages, are probably not open and honest enough not to maybe have those thoughts, but open and honest enough to actually come and express that sort of thing to you. So what would your advice to be to coaches maybe in terms of help developing, creating an environment where the young players do feel confident enough and able to be expressive in that way? Yeah, I mean, I have, to be honest, I haven't really looked at it in those terms. I just knew that the words cut me to my very heart. <laughs> um but actually, for, for the boy to, to, to come and say to it, say that to me, something must have been right in that he felt as though he could. Yeah. So that, that's a really uh, a good point. Uh, I think the building, a, building an environment based on kindness, trust and patience is really difficult if you don't enjoy being in the company of young children. But I, I think it's so necessary in order for you to take them on any kind of journey whatsoever. And so people say to me, you know, what's the secret, Peter? And it, it just sounds so boring that I, I like to be kind. I like to be, um, I, I like to send out very strong messages that this is a safe place and you can trust me. And I, I have to be really consistent with, with my dealings with things so that the players don't think, oh, you say one thing, but remember when you reacted like that, and you know. And it doesn't mean you have to be completely soft. The, the players that come to my sessions work really, really hard. They are really challenging, but it's because you can you t you've taken them to a place where even though it's really difficult, they want to try and achieve and they know if they don't achieve that you're not going to call them out. You're still going to be really supportive. And I think if if young coaches listening to this, if you could really pick up on that, that if you can make your sessions really, really challenging, but the kids still go for it, I think they say that they must deep down think this is a great place to be. Because if we can't do it, or if we if we make mistakes and we're not successful it's still okay. Definitely. So kind of, you know, just as we, again, back to yourself now, you had this time at the FA, you've had a range of experiences. <clears throat> What's next for Pete Sturgis? You know, you're obviously working in the foundation phase of the National League. Um, where do you see yourself going next? I mean, I'm sure you're probably <laughs> enjoying your role. It's been probably very difficult over the last few months, in particular with the pandemic and the lockdown and whatnot. Yeah. Where do you see yourself uh, in the next couple of years? Well, do, do you know... Uh, People have, uh, have asked me this recently, partly because I'm, I'm getting really old now, but it's still a work in progress and there are still so many things that we can improve on. And I'm old enough to have watched England win the World Cup in 1966. I, I was 12. 
and it had a, a massive impact upon me because England won the World Cup in 66. Celtic won the, the old European Cup in 67. And then Manchester United won it at Wembley in 68. And I just thought, as a, as a teenager, or just entered my teenage years, that this was the norm. And then for 50-odd years, we've been in the wilderness. And so if I can contribute to changing that by the work that I do, then it, for me, it's still a work in progress. And I really want to play my part in England achieving something really special over the next, you know, three, four, five years. Mm. So I guess, you know, on, on that note then, if I gave you 60 seconds now to package away a golden nugget for our listeners to maybe sort of think about it within their own coaching journeys, what would that be? I think you've got to be yourself. I think you've got to be really self-reflective and aware of your own strengths and then open-minded enough to see all of the strengths in all the children, even though for some they may never go on to be professional footballers or even play football for very long. But if you have that kind of willingness to try to release potential whatever that might look like i think you can work effectively with young children and give them something from their time with you mm. and i just want you know if if young children are prepared to give up lots of their free time to work with me i want that to be productive and i want it to be special and i want it to be memorable for them but for all the right reasons and just a final question for you then, Pete. When you do finally um, decide to hang, hang up your, you know, hang your boots <laughs> up, so to speak, what would you want your legacy to be? Um, do you know what? If people said that that old fella, he, he wasn't bad, that would be it. Um, and the work that he did with young children gave them a voice in an industry that doesn't always listen well. Um, and he was able to promote the importance of working effectively with young children. I think I'd, I'd settle for that. Brilliant. And I think, you know, just having that, I think that legacy element is always about, for me, the impact you're going to have on others rather than a, a personal thing, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. But look, Pete, thank you again for your time. Uh, this morning it's been very you know very insightful conversation for me and i'm sure it has been for the listeners too now if the listeners were to have any questions or any thoughts beyond this discussion is there anywhere else where they can get in touch with you yes they can get in touch with me on my fa email um peter.sturgis at the fa.com and i'll i'll always reply Perfect. Well, there you have it, guys. It's another edition of the Coaches Network Insight Series, where we sit down with experienced individuals across the multiple disciplines within the coaching world, hoping to explore their journeys and key insights in order to package away some golden nuggets that you can apply to help you reach your full potential. I've no doubt that you've enjoyed today's episode as much as we have, but I just want to say thanks again for tuning in. The support is much appreciated. 
please do get in touch with us and today's guests. Let us know where you're listening from to share your thoughts, views and key takeaways from today's show, along with any suggestions you may have for guests or future topics on the show that you'd like to hear discussed. Ultimately, guys, the show is about yourselves. The content is for you and we just want to continue to create that great content. On that note, get in touch with us on Instagram at The Coaches Network and on Twitter at The Coaches Net. And if you want to touch base with Coach Ben, he's available on Instagram and Twitter at FocusBXN. Lastly, guys, keep an eye on our socials for the latest updates and announcements for upcoming guests and discussion topics with the panel. And until next time, guys, take care. The Coaches Network, bringing the game together. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.